What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Just Effort Podcast. I'm Angelo. I'm your host, and I'm excited to bring you episode number 28. Yes, we are 28 episodes in, and I'm excited for this one because Renata and I are going to be talking to Suzanne Buchanan. Suzanne used to be a mediator for the Department of Justice, and basically what that means is she traveled all over the world dealing with major, like, socioeconomic conflicts and she's been a part of a lot of great things that's gone on within the u.s as well and she basically talks about the importance of communication and and not just you know the verbal communication but actually listening and caring and for those of you who are in business for those of you who are who who work with other people whether they're employees or your family members or leaders you're really going to want to listen to this closely because suzanne goes into some pretty big details and she tells a lot of cool stories of how she's worked with you know um, a lot of different global leaders to help resolve some of these conflicts which is due to miscommunication or some kind of communication error And here's the thing, before I go any further, before we get into the episode, you guys need to know that Suzanne is such an amazing person. She's doing all of this while going through an incurable disease, while while dealing with an incurable disease. And the the best thing about this is right from the get-go you can see her energy you can see her passion and how she still has such a positive outlook on life even though she's going through such a heavy burden so this is such a great episode and i'm excited i want to i want to get into it so you guys listen to listen to what suzanne has to say about communication life energy listening and caring i know this is gonna be a great one I know this is going to be a great one to start off your Friday and start off the weekend right. Have a great Friday and I'll see you guys soon. So Suzanne, thank you for hanging out with us and, you know, being a guest on the Just Effort podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you, what you do, where you come from and uh, give us your quick story. Sure. A little bit of background, I guess. Um, So... Career-wise, I was always drawn to helping others. I started off in a communications career as a copywriter at an advertising agency. And then I moved to, um, that was, didn't, I didn't feel right. I didn't, it didn't sit right. Um, It was great fun, but I knew there was more I can do. And pretty soon after I switched to working for nonprofits and cause organizations. And I went on to do national communications and uh, soon found out I could do intercultural communications, uh, multicultural communications, and ended up uh, moving to South Asia where I lived and worked for three years. I lived in Pakistan for two years. I lived in India for one year. And I worked in the international development field where your government donors uh, donate money for education, sanitation, all kinds of good projects, uh, kind of nation building type of projects. So I did communications there. I learned the languages. 
I would work in villages or in between the international NGOs and the villages, or I'd do project documentaries. So I was out there really in the field hustling to do that kind of work. And um, always with the goal of connecting and being a conduit. And I really just fell in love and I thought, wow, what, what are the chances if I can do this here, I need to build bridges where it matters most. Mm -hmm. And that's in conflict. And so mm -hmm. I came back to the US, I got a master's degree in conflict analysis and resolution and a, some other certificate in world religion and diplomacy and started working on international conflict projects. Uh, doing proposals and things like that. And uh, soon after, I was hired by the United States Department of Justice, where I was hired to be a mediator um, and work on preventing hate crimes and addressing discrimination in communities across the U.S. For me, my position was primarily on the East Coast. Um, and I worked with the nation's most diverse communities, really in some of the most emotional times. When Baltimore rioted, I went in and worked with the gangs and brought them together to talk with the city. So they flew you in to do all that? Yeah, I basically lived in Baltimore for four months out of a hotel and worked with the city and community on bridging the divide and working to address what you know, the root causes of the problems were. Wow. When uh, Charlottesville happened and those extremist right groups came in and there was all the rioting and Heather Heyer was killed, uh, that became my case. And I went into Charlottesville for four months about and worked with the community and city on really helping them heal and move through all of the tension and trauma that resulted. So... so this is so fascinating. And I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I just kind of want to spend some time here because I love what you said about the whole conflict resolution, you know, yeah. whether that's on a one-on-one -on -one scale in a nonprofit or intercultural or, or like on a big scale, like the U S and you're solving like government exactly. gang problems. What is it about, um, It's so interesting. There's so many different questions I want to ask you. And it's all yeah. kind of based around communication, right? That's kind of your, your all history. of it. So all what do you think is it. the biggest thing about what, what is it a lack of communication? Is it miscommunication? If you could pick one or two, what are the big things that attribute to these conflicts, whether it's at a big scale or larger scale? I think there's several factors. I think number one, it's listening. Mm. Uh, and, and of course, if you're gonna to go to listening, you have to back up a little bit and let's talk about caring about each other and really caring for each other. Um, somewhere along the line, you know, as we grow, as we scale, as we get busy in our lives, I think all of us, it happens that somehow we lose sight that each individual around us has value, that we matter, that we have something to say and uh, that we are ultimately a constellation of communities. Whether you identify by your race, whether you identify by your neighborhood, there are many different types of community. And I think really it just goes back to caring for each other. So um, 
there were systemic needs um, in Baltimore that weren't being met. Uh, there were historic issues that weren't being met. Uh, very deep things are happening and, and have continued to happen. It's also a drug central and, um, you know, the streets I was walking on were, were definitely uh, the ones where you'd hear about murders happening every day. So super rough area in West Baltimore. But, um, you know, ultimately the disconnect comes and somebody has to get in and mix things up and uh, invite people back to the table to talk to each other. So. So how do you do that? Because I feel like that's so difficult to bring two parties together that have conflicting ideas or opinions, how do you get them to start caring about each other? Usually, I go for the long game. Um, I go for vision. And let's talk about, let's talk about the status quo. If we maintain this for another five years, where do you see this going? Um, each conflict party is usually hurting in some way. There are issues there that really separate us from each other. And whether we realize it or not, it hurts us. So um, I think part of it is helping people have a vision of, you know, what the status quo looks like, the opportunity cost of not engaging, and also helping people kind of shift, make a big mental shifts in the narratives, in the history, because in almost all cases, there was a history of discrimination, a history of tension. And so it takes a lot of courage for somebody to go in and look at their narrative and the stories that they were told, the stories they teach their children, the stories they believe, even about themselves and their value and have them risk changing that belief and really learning that there's another way to think about things. Mm. It's deep work. It's hard work. It's emotional work. So some communities I worked with, there's historic tension from slavery still. That um, was a hypersensitive context in Charlottesville as well. And of course, politics and everything else affect this. The media, politics, current events, history. So as somebody who deals with people relations and communications, I'm always analyzing all of those contexts simultaneously to be able to understand exactly how things got the way they are currently and then what would be an appropriate step forward yeah i love that i love that i'm just writing down just a few notes because i want to revisit that idea later so you being like the mediator and you know you're kind of seeing like here is the person or community you're supposed to help how like how do you know how deep to go right like you're you're looking yeah. into their history you're looking into you know what's happened in the news for the last 90 days like how like how like if, if you can give me like a little frame of reference how far back do you go yeah so i go as far back as they allow mm. right so it really is up to their courage their tenacity their will to 
break whatever is hurting the community and to make change. And that takes tremendous courage because even though where they are, uh, they might be hurting where they are, the, uh, the risk is something unknown. At least they know where they are, they know that history, and chances are they share it with those around them. To take the risk of believing something different, to leave that identity, it's become part of their identity, so to risk changing that identity or evolving, uh, that's something that takes a lot of courage. And so I let the community set the pace, but what I do is I position myself as somebody that they can trust to go deep. That, you know, my work, there was a confidentiality mandate so that anything that they said stayed with me and we would work with that internally. Um, and that was written into the agency I worked for, that was written into kind of our statutes um, in the Civil Rights Act so that Honestly, if we did talk about things and violate that, there were penalties for us. Yeah. But, um, but it's common sense. You cannot have, you know, you cannot ask somebody to walk with you if they don't trust you. Mm. So for me, it's being that person that people can identify with, being that person that people felt comfortable with and safe with, and being the example of somebody who was willing to be vulnerable with them. Mm. And when you put it out there first, hearts follow. And that's, that's perfect because it leads into uh, my next question, because I imagine you're working with more of the leaders, right? Like you're not working with like a hundred people at once necessarily, but you know, you have that one point of contact or that one leader leading this movement or community. How do you, get past someone who's just got that hard exterior, who doesn't want to trust you, who believes like, Hey, this is my community. How are you going to tell me how to run this? How yeah. do you, how do you come in there, you know, being just a sweet person you are and take control of that conversation and have them trust you to the point where you start to influence them? Yeah. So, um, I would say I'm equally spicy as sweet. Nice. And <laughs> number two, uh, so, also, when I move into a conflict situation, um, initially, I am working with hundreds. Mm -hmm. Initially, um, and you can Google my name and, and Department of Justice, and you'll find my name in Charlottesville articles where they had a town hall meeting, and I, I um, worked with the city to set that up so people would actually be able to release some of the trauma and tension and concerns and be able to get that off of their chest to me rather than the anger projected at the city. And so I wanted that at me because A, uh, it's not going to be very productive if it's, it becomes, you know, more contentious. So in that situation, there were maybe 500, four to 500 people in an auditorium. Um, at a time. So I'm often facilitating conversations with large numbers of people. But as we move towards progress and towards an action plan, absolutely we're identifying leaders and then work. And of course, we allow the community to identify the leaders. Mm -hmm. So there's no bias involved from our part. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, we work there moving forward. As far as the ones that are reticent and very fixed in their position, uh, for me, that just means that A, they care a lot and that there's a lot of pain there. Mm. And sometimes, unfortunately, um, there can be an identity issue where their status in the community is based on their opposition to something mm. or a conflict position. So you have to be able to kind of weed that out and understand if they're genuinely in that position or if they're making a living by being in that position and you're threatening their job. Wow. Now, before we switch gears, because there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I want to respect your time. Yeah. Um, is there a story that you can share with us and the listeners of, of where you've, where you um, dealt with someone who was just totally, just like what you were describing, where they're kind of hesitant or resistant to help or change, but it ended up, you know, working for the better. Is there a quick story you can kind of share with us without, you know, putting everything in, you know, at risk or anything like that? I think maybe the one that popped to mind is actually not during my time working with the Department of Justice. It was uh, while I was living overseas in India, I was at an institute in Hyderabad, India, and um, there was a conference going on for interfaith dialogue. And there was um, a lot of tension in this area, tons of Hindu-Muslim conflict, uh, murders, things going on. And then they were also, they had a third religion in there. Uh, they had a Buddhist group as well. So this was like a major conference where religious leaders from around the country came. And so there was a Muslim leader from um, Kashmir, which I don't know how much, uh, there's always a dispute in Kashmir uh, about whether it should be independent or controlled by India's government, which is uh, largely Hindu. So there's there's a lot of conflict there. So a, um, a Muslim preacher came and he basically just tore up everyone in the room. Whoa. And to the point where people were, after the conference saying he was an extremist, they needed to kick him out, that he would promote terrorism and uh, basically he was calling for jihad in Kashmir. And so it escalated quite quickly. Mm. And um, this was really maybe one of the signs that I was meant to go in this direction at the time, but I just simply asked him for a conversation and um, really, it was a one-on-one -on -one conversation where the kind of transformation that we would pray happened did mm. and it really wasn't any deeper than him fearing a loss of his identity and felt like he had social stature to lose and he couldn't imagine another way to position himself as strong and as a leader, if he didn't fight and, and yell at people and wasn't, you know, this, he, this was what he was taught. This is where he came from. 
and uh, anger was the, the most effective, uh, how would you say, manipulator of really behavior in that regard. So uh, that was his frame of reference. And so we talked through that and were able to shift that within about two hours. Wow. And uh, the next day, you know, people were coming up with, to me and asking like what did you do to him <laughs> this is a different man yeah. and uh i was said okay there's something to this that's awesome so, that's it was cool beautiful story. yeah i think it's so fascinating to hear you tell these stories and kind of like really come at things with an open mind um, and i think for everybody out there we've been in conflicts with others um, and so i'm curious to hear what would be the one piece of advice that you would give people to help with dealing with conflict in their own lives? I think when it comes to conflict in our own lives, it's so hard for us to emotionally detach ourselves from the situation to look at it from, you know, that, that bird's eye view. Um, we really have to take stock of what, why we're feeling what we're feeling. Uh, do we feel threatened? Is something pushing against a boundary that we've set for our life? Or are there expectations that you had that were not met, which is commonly the case? And did you give that other person a fair chance by communicating your expectation so they would understand what they were? Uh, this is frequently an issue in relationships and, and um, so many conflicts we have, but it's really taking stock of where we're at. Um, you know, are we in physical danger? Generally not, right? So let's, let's get a perspective um, on things. And of course, my frame of reference is, is kind of big because I've seen all of these really contentious conflicts. So when I see things like that, I'm like, oh, we got this, you know? It's, it's not that big. It's really yeah. not that big. So, yeah. Oh, perspective. 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 And, you know, it, I'm kind of curious to, to hear because we deal with clients and, you know, obviously not to that type of caliber. Sure. But maybe, well, I'm sure one day, you know, but uh, um, we, we understand that when you speak to someone and you're coaching someone or having that conversation, you tend to take on a little bit of that baggage as well like if they're having it's a really deep conversation it does drain you a little bit it's just naturally that's yeah. just how it works if you're doing it right now i'm curious to see because you're doing all these things and traveling and talking to all these high caliber leaders how has that affected you and your health and your fitness and how do you maintain all of that yeah so uh i think there's two tracks because we always uh want to take the holistic perspective of health Right. So for sure, there's the emotional and mental um, strain that it puts on, and it does. Uh, if you're doing the job effectively, you are not purely analytical, you're empathetic. Mm. And they feel when you're there with them. They know when you're with them versus you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I see. So... Uh, doing my job correctly means that I do feel the weight. Uh, after like the five hour session with 
Charlottesville, uh, the community there where I facilitated the town hall meeting after everything happened, I ate two double five guys and curled up in a ball and <laughs> wanted to sleep for a really long time because it was heavy. Yeah. It was super heavy and, and exhausting. Um, the community was absolutely traumatized and could not process it in any other way than to just be furious and just traumatized. It was very sad. So, uh, but I knew it had to happen. I knew they needed that outlet and I wanted to be the person because I knew I could take that and and do something constructive with it so of course while they're speaking and saying this i have my colleague writing up all the points that they're making so that we're creating an action plan so it is it's a process so um but as far as the health you have to recenter yourself uh, recovery is key uh building up before it get good sleep get you know nutrition 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 uh, Renata knows I'll be all over that for sure. Um, and really afterwards, taking that time, finding what centers you, grounds you, and it's so important for your mental health. Yeah. And that's in every, every tense situation, really. Anyone who deals with stress, I think that's uh, a best practice, but I think it's even more when you're dealing with really emotional high context conflict mm. and and it's physically exhausting too yeah yeah i love that you mentioned nutrition and you emphasize it three times you know <laughs> that that that's huge and how did you come about to, how do you did you always know that um nutrition was important or like did you experience this and then find out later on like oh man i really gotta lock in on my nutrition so um for me you know I would say my achievement has not been really the progression of my career as much as it's been the progression of my career while managing a potentially fatal blood disease. Mm. So I have uh, very real health issues. Uh, it's a blood disease. It's caused by a genetic mutation. And it's so rare that I'm in a study group with the National Institute of Health that track my health and progress. Wow. So uh, through my life, I've not only had to learn to manage that, I realized very early on there are no solutions that traditional Western medicine, they don't have an answer for me as they still do not for many chronic illnesses and diseases. And so I had to take matters into my own hands and explore what the rest of the world said about nutrition, about health, and ways that I could not only keep up with my peers, but, but live the life I dream. Hmm. There's, Renata has a question. I have a question. We're just like, okay, we're just, go ahead, Renata, sorry. <laughs> so I'm really curious, are you able to share what the name is of the, the blood disease? I am. It's called hyper IgE. So it's for immunoglobin E. And that's one of the many serums we have in our blood. Um, it's an extremely rare condition. And I 
it's so rare that most doctors have never met anyone with it. They've only heard about it. They've never treated anyone with it. And the best case scenario, um, what they offer is a lifetime of what they call prophylactic, which is preventive antibiotics, and which also leads to a lifetime of very strong antifungal medicine because the probiotics destroy the good flora and, and fauna in your body, your good bacteria that you need. Um, you hear lately everyone's talking about gut health and that's the new trend in nutrition. Well, they're just learning about the different good bacteria strains, what each one does for your body. And of course, I'm, I'm hyper aware of that because I do have a history of taking antibiotics and I've had to, unfortunately, to survive. So um, I'm very cognizant of that and try to stay, stay as current as I can on everything. Yeah. So then was one of the symptoms of the disease um, around like gastrointestinal issues? Not at all. So um, that is not really uh, a symptom that I would experience. However, there were issues from the antibiotics. So it was more of a side effect issue because the antibiotics kill all your good bacteria. And this is why, this is another reason why not just antibiotic resistance, um, antibiotic abuse that leads to resistance is an issue, but also um, taking too many antibiotics completely destroys the good bacteria in your body that is critical to maintain homeostasis through multiple areas of your body. It affects your uh, brain clarity, it affects your digestion, it affects so many other areas. So gut health is super important and uh, yeah. Mm. So. so how did you come to realize that you had this, were you just kind of feeling low energy or how, you know, would, would you mind sharing that story? So, um, I had, I was very sick in my childhood, you know, just starting at a few months after I was born through childhood, multiple hospitalizations for infections. I couldn't fight off numerous pneumonias, things like that. Like you would say, she was like a sickly little child. And, uh, thankfully my parents were like, uh, how would you say, I don't know, I was their fourth child. So they were like, whatever girls, let's just <laughs> keep it rolling. So they weren't, you know, hypersensitive about it. So I lived a really normal childhood, uh, despite the fact that I would get sick all the time. And so it wasn't until I had a allergist that said, well, let me test you for something because your symptoms are super similar to something I've read about, but I've never, of course, treated anyone with because it was very rare. And so they tested me for it and found out I had this condition. And um, genetic testing later would prove that. So that is how I found out when I was in like the fourth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, and because it's so rare though, you would think, oh, finally, you know what's, what's wrong and now you know what to do. There's no rule book because it's so rare. So people still weren't sure about a protocol. 
you know what fascinates me and you know it i guess like that may not be the right choice of words after you just told this very like, that's okay <laughs> i'm like oh sorry i might have to edit that one out but <laughs> <laughs> no but you know what i i i just want to give you some praise on this because you have such a positive attitude like you are smiling you're laughing and i know for the people listening you're not you obviously can't see her smiling but as she's telling this story i'm like renata and i are just like oh man that's crazy and she's like smiling and you have this joy and peace and just such a positive outlook and mindset about this whole thing how do you how do you have that because a lot of people will complain about being late to work today or you know stubbing their toe or you know just getting a cold and having to deal with the rest of the day like you have this you have a blood disease that's so rare since the fourth grade and yet you have this joy and peace about you i i just i I have to ask like how do you have that did you always have that or i don't know if i always had that but you know i um i always had faith i always had faith that i was meant to be here i've i mean angelo i've almost died several times i've been very very sick before and each time the universe god a team of doctors, like I'm still here. And so at some point you start to think, wow, okay, maybe this is meant to be, (laughs) damn it, I'm here. And so we might as well kick some butt along the way. And so I really, you know, there's no sense in not making the most of every day. You know, they say that we're, you know, when we're born, we have 30,000 days. That's how long our traditional lifespan is. Right now, I have about 13,400 days left in my life. Every day matters. And when you've been to that point, when you've been to that brink where you may not see tomorrow, oh my gosh, we are so blessed to be here. Wow. Yeah. So. I was like, hallelujah. Holy Amen, cow. right? That I was mean, amazing. Can I, I make that my ringtone? Oh my goodness. You know, I will never forget when I was first diagnosed with this condition and I had a family doctor that was just a sweetheart and he looked at me and he said, you can still have a good life. And I was about nine years old and I was... I don't think I had the words yet, but I was like, shit, motherfucker, that was depressing. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the fuck? And, oh, and the, the next sentence out of his mouth was like, don't give up. And I just remember looking up at him and being like, you have no idea who I am. I've got this. I've got this. And so... I mean, the path has not been clear or smooth because I'm super on my own with the rare condition that not only no one, I, you know, no one else, rarely, barely anyone else has, but it manifests differently in each one of us that has it. So we'll have some symptoms that are similar and some that are totally different. So, um, the disease in itself causes multiple other problems with my body. And so I just remember 
him saying that and I thought that's not it for me there's more for me and one night when I was little I remember praying to God and we had a conversation and I felt like I had some answers mm. and I just asked him I said am I gonna be okay and he said yeah you're gonna make it and he said it won't be easy and I realized, you know, I'm like, that's acceptable. Okay. You know? And, and then I said, and then I was like selfish and I was like, am I going to be pretty? <laughs> I was really little. And, and he was like, you're going to be just fine. And I was like, okay. <laughs> one more thing, though, I have to go to school tomorrow. <laughs> I did. I was, it was like, I felt like that too. And I, I just thought, okay, I had to ask. So, you know, I'm so not perfect so far. There is no cure, right? But I deal with things so effectively that I decided it was, it would be a crime if I kept this insight and knowledge to myself. Mm. And I've learned so much about natural health, about nutrition, about immunity, about so many of the other problem, other problems that my disease has uh, caused, you know, very bad scoliosis, I have glaucoma, I have osteopenia, all these other things that I just decided I needed to find out what was going to work for me. And if I find that, I need to share that with as many others as I can. So I love that. That is where I am now is, uh, you know, I quit the Department of Justice job and I decided I wanted to go all in on helping others with chronic illnesses and helping them navigate and really build the mindset, the skills and tools to help manage whatever they're facing. Mm. Now, you know, um, I want to, again, I want to respect your time. Is that what you're doing with Thrive and Overcome? That is. Awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I was trying to look up more and I was trying to look more into it. Yeah. But, uh, you know. So And it's, it's new. It's very new. So I'm just working with uh, developers and people to get things up and going. Okay. But um, I have been helping. I've already been coaching people with chronic illnesses informally for probably about 10 years. And it ranges from people with cancer to emphysema, to, you know, very serious conditions, to people who are, you know, keep getting colds and flus. Uh, these, those things are, are pretty simple to me. Uh, and so I really want to develop a resource center for people to come to where they know that somebody who's actually been there has found resources that work and will share it with community. So that's where we're going for now. Good, good. Yeah. And just so you know, whatever we can do, like myself or, you know, our organization, Modern Fitness, whatever we can do to help you grow or bring more attention to what you're doing, please don't hesitate to let us know because I, I mean that wholeheartedly. I love, like, this is our first time really getting into, like, this type of conversation. And it's just... Yeah. 
I love everything you're saying. And I could just get like, I know it's like an online thing, but I can like feel your energy and just feel your spirit that you genuinely want good for the world. You have, Absolutely. You, you've had, you know, my mom, you know, a, a thing, a quick thing on me is like, we grew up poor in Chicago, right? So we didn't have yeah. a whole lot. And my mom would always tell us, and I've mentioned this in the podcast before, my mom would always tell us that you are blessed. So be a blessing to others. Mm. I didn't really get that when I was younger, but now I see it now. And that was one of the first quotes that I thought of as you were telling your story. You know, you are blessed with everything that's been thrown at you. You are still blessed and you are out here blessing others. Multiple. Bring it. Yes. Yes. So how can people connect with you? Sure. Um, Instagram would be easy for me. Uh, My Instagram handle is redcarat. It's K-A-R-A-T. Just one word, no underscore or anything? Nope. One yeah. word, that would be the easiest way. Okay. And if they wanted to reach you any other platform, Facebook, or is there an email you're willing to give out that people can reach out to you directly? Sure. Uh, they can reach me at Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, at carrot, K-A-R-A-T, communications.com. Awesome. Awesome. We're going to put that in the show notes as well. So the people that do want to reach out, obviously you have myself or Renata that if you're already used to reaching out to us, we'll get you guys connected or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but Suzanne, if you can leave one, if you could just speak to that one person that's listening right now, who may be going through like the shit storm in their life, what would, what would you tell them? I would tell them that God is building them into something bigger and better than they can fathom. And that if they stay with it and stay authentic in their journey, they're going to get there. That's amazing. I love that. I could just cry right now because of that. Renata is actually crying. She's just trying to blink and just dry it out. I'm not crying. You're crying. You're crying. It was incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and just sharing your your positivity. I mean, despite everything, you would never know to look at you that you that there was anything wrong. And just I I so appreciate the joy and love that you bring into the world. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. So, and please let me know anything I can do for you guys. Really. Thank you. You're going to have people come your way. And if they need something more than wellness, if they need something more, I'm there. Mm. Yes. Yes. Suzanne, thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. I can't wait for this episode to go out because I, I, I could just imagine the listeners right now just like driving or listening, trying to take notes or whatever. So make sure you guys are in a safe place before you, you know, take notes and stop whatever you're doing because this was a great episode. Again, Suzanne, thank you for being here and we will definitely be in touch soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. 